Miss the show? No worries. On Point on the podcast. We'll talk about the Prime Minister inking a child care deal with Alberta, which adds up to now eight provinces having some kind of deal with the feds. So Ontario's the outlier on this issue. But is this a deal about getting good headlines, or does it actually add up? Because when it comes to Ontario, it doesn't, especially if you don't work Monday to Friday, 9 to 5. The Toronto District School Board worrying about the message someone like Murray Hinnon can send to their little girls, but they don't worry at all about the anti-Semitism being openly taught in Toronto's schools. We know cancel culture is killing critical thinking, but why such selective outrage if we're really worried about what our kids are being taught? And just how big will these Astro World lawsuits get? More than 100 suits have now been filed. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars in lawsuits. So what does this mean now for the future of large live festival type events? Let us get talking. This is On Point with Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. The uh, emotion I feel is really not uh, a personal one, but uh, one that's shared with the public, which is a concern that we feel, first of all, young people uh, need to be shielded and protected from critical thought, from engaging, from thinking, from things they may not agree with, uh, because they're just not smart enough to figure it out. And I think nothing uh, could be further from the truth. We know about the censorship attempt of Murray Hennon. My question is, what censorship don't we know about? Hello there, Alex Pearson, with you on this Monday, November 15th. And I swear to God, I woke up and said, what? How's the weekend over? That was one of the fastest weekends I recall of late. I hope you managed to catch your breath. But no question, we are into that very busy uh, hustle and bustle. You know, you wake up and all of a sudden the day disappears before you start. So here we go into a brand new week. And uh, it's been a pretty busy Monday for us. Got lots to get through in the show and we will. But I want to wrap this issue with the school board up, albeit I'm not so sure it's over yet. But they've been twisting themselves into a knot, trying to clean up a mess of their own making. And um, I think it's a mess that brings long overdue clarity. And thankfully, you know, there are still ones of people you can't cancel. And Marie Hennon is one of them. And I'm glad the board picked this fight with her because their stupidity has allowed the curtain to be pulled back on what I see as a very, you know, cancerous ideology that I think is sabotaging our kids' education. And we already know free thought, of course, at universities was locked down years ago. My question is, you know, why do we allow this to happen? When did this become just accepted? You know, and it didn't take long for the board to rush out its groveling apology. And naturally, Ms. Hannon naturally accepted it. But it's not the board even tried to cancel her that is the problem. Because had it been anyone else, we wouldn't know about it. We wouldn't have heard anything about it. I mean, had this just been about Nadia Murad, who is the other author the TDSB tried to cancel, we just wouldn't be talking about this. It wouldn't have gotten out. And of course, in her case, the TDSDB did not want students hearing from her because, well, they believed her book about surviving ISIS promotes Islamophobia. You know, you see the connection, right? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Except they didn't even bother to read the book, which they now admit. These are the people in charge of our kids' education. So first of all, if you're going to cancel someone, maybe know what you're talking about. But how can they not know the difference between a terror group and ordinary Muslims, right? I think it's also clear that the province's biggest school board, 
not to mention progressives at large, have zero understanding about how our legal system works. The board's concern was that the message it might send to little girls, you know, to have Gian Gameshi's lawyer talk to them. And I've seen the sentiment expressed all weekend, all online, with one person, and I will uh, not say the name, but said, uh, quote, many think a criminal defense lawyer attack a sexual assault complainant on the stand is now owed a public school board platform to sell her books. To which my eyes rolled back in my head. No. Marie Hennen does not need to sell books. And she hardly needs a platform. She does quite well on her own. I don't know if you've ever hired her, but, you know, the hourly fee is not small. But this notion that she attacked a sexual <clears throat> assault complainant is simply nonsense. And I'm not going to relitigate the trial, but the job of a defense lawyer is to cast doubt on allegations. And in the case of Gomeshi, there were plenty to be cast. The complainant was not credible. And that is why the case fell apart the second that Hannon uh, pushed for details like, why did you meet Mr. Gomeshi the next day and have brunch and then cuddle with him at the park? Or why did you go to a barbecue with him? two days after the alleged incident? Or why did you send flirty notes with him? Sexually provocative selfies. Why did you do those things if you thought you had been raped? I mean, anyone with a basic understanding of our legal system, and I've covered it long enough that I think I can say that that is not what I'd be asking about the message it sends to little girls. But if kids do have questions, then I think we should allow those questions to be asked. Even as Hannon pointed out to Greg this morning on the morning show, if they don't like the answer. You know, I think people have a really um, confused idea about what is hate speech, which obviously is something nobody should be uh, exposed to, and what may be offensive or out of the box or, or something you quite simply don't agree with. And I think we have to remind ourselves you know, when you go back to the 60s, for example, people who were opposing the Vietnam War were put into that category, were put into a category of people you were not allowed to hear from because it was, you know, it would be too offensive. So the problem is our sense of what is correct, uh, you know, morally and socially changes. And it should. It should evolve. But the way it evolves is by engaging in speech, even, you know, ideas that you do not agree with. Ooh. No, 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 no. Not not now. But the bottom line is, sadly, it's not just the TDSB doing all the censoring. I mean, we've talked about it on the show. You know, you've got the Ottawa School Board, Waterloo School Board. They're emptying libraries of, you know, the classics that don't fit their ideology. I mean, this thing is not new. This is a thing now. I think hopefully what's happened to Hannon will push parents to start questioning, you know, what and how are the kids learning? And I assure you, I, I don't think a lot of parents know half the crap that's going on in the schools. Because on Friday, while all the talk was about this particular case of censorship, there were students at one Toronto school who staged a walkout where they were holding up signs outside the school promoting a genocidal slogan that calls for the complete destruction of Israel and the annihilation of the Jewish people. All right? Now, where would they learn that? Well, in our very progressive schools, of course. Look, I don't blame the kids directly. I doubt they have a clue of the hate message they were even sending out. But my question to the school is, are you good with this? Are you good with anti-Semitism? 
did they do anything about it? I mean, for a board so concerned about Islamophobia or messages being sent to little girls, you would think that maybe there'd be some concern for Jewish students who are being targeted by anti-Semitism on a daily basis, right? Oh, no, no. I mean, the board in Toronto just paid an activist thousands of dollars to train teachers about anti-black racism and then allowed him to spew anti-Semitic slogans unchallenged because, as he said, no one can or will stop him. And I dare say there is rarely, if ever, much concern from our edu- you know, equity educators about that kind of hate. I think the only message the TDSB should be worried about is the message they themselves are allowing to get to the kids. And that is, these boards are intolerant to any progressive view that is not theirs. And they are also very selective with what hate they do and do not tolerate. We want more investment for Ontario because currently the deal being proposed by the feds, that $10.2 billion allocation, does not recognize this province, unlike Alberta, respectfully, in fact, literally, you know, eight of 10 provinces does not fund full day subsidized in-school care for four and five-year-olds where we invest literally annually $3.6 billion. So we want them to work with us. We're working with them. We think we can still land a deal, but we need there to be more investment from the feds to recognize the unique, sophisticated, mature childcare system that we have proudly in this province. That's Education Minister Stephen Lecce today clarifying why Ontario has yet to ink a deal for daycare with the Trudeau government. And I know a lot of people are questioning why we haven't signed on. I think the question we should be asking is, why would we sign on? And the way the deal works now is the Trudeau Liberals are promising provinces a 50-50 partnership to cover daycare costs, bring them down to 10 bucks a day for parents. And so they've offered provinces $10.2 billion over five years, and then there's a very vague gray area commitment to fund it in the years following. But when you look at Ontario, we've got the most expensive daycare rates, period. Currently, we're spending $2 billion a year on childcare, but we also pay $3.5 billion a year on full-day kindergarten, and no other province has that. So this all makes for very big headlines, but whether or not it's a smart deal for Ontarians to sign... That is a different question. Brian Lilly joining me from the Toronto Sun, political Sun columnist, and I'm so glad you have been following this. This is one of those issues where I was like, oh, I'd like to explain this, but you got to really know the numbers because the devil is in the details. So I turn it over to you. I'll I'll give you this, Alex. I've been following this for more than 20 years since my uh, now 20-year-old son, uh, oh, sorry, 21-year-old son was a a newborn and I was in Quebec. working for Chorus Radio, following their uh, um, their daycare problems in that province, where they've had a national daycare program, as they would call it, since uh, sometime sure. in the 90s. So, you know, this is complex. And Stephen Lecce is right when he calls it a mature and complex system. Um, that reference that he made to the $3.6 billion spent on all-day, fully subsidized kindergarten for junior and senior, he's right. Other provinces don't have that. Some provinces, it's half day, or it's half day for junior kindergarten uh, and full day for senior kindergarten. There isn't the same type of system that we have in Ontario. Now, that was, uh, I believe that was the around the time between McGinty and Wynne transitioning. So it was the former Liberal yeah. government 
in a but it also but, but can I point out it's also yeah. gone up two point like it used to be a billion dollars now it's up to three point five billion so it's yeah. it's it's and going up because these things get more expensive um the you know a, a previous government had you know put money on the table for child care and the liberals in Ontario in that day said you know what we're going to put it into full day kindergarten that was the choice that was made at the time it is mm-hmm. a good system parents like it parents want to keep it but the federal government right now is not recognizing that as part of the system well that's school that's not child care okay but in other provinces you are providing funding for four and five-year-olds you add to that let me just read off the list this is from the federal budget uh, the most expensive city in the country according to mm-hmm. this chart in the federal budget is toronto one thousand five hundred and seventy eight dollars is the median price put it uh, per month to put a toddler in childcare Richmond Hill that that, right that, that you got to be very lucky to find that childcare cuz that's a bargain Richmond Hill is mm-hmm. the second at 1327 Markham mm-hmm. is the fourth at 1300 Mississauga fifth 1284 London 1191 Hamilton 1027 now let's compare that to other cities that are getting the same per child funding model that's on offer to Ontario. Winnipeg, median price, $451. Charlottetown, 608. Regina, 675. Those provinces are being offered a per child model, so is Ontario. Well, how do you, if, if you're funding on a per child model, how do you pay for childcare when there's almost $1,000 difference between Charlottetown and Regina in Toronto, you don't. And that's why my, mm. my latest column at the Toronto Sun, it, it just went live on the website about half an hour or so ago. Uh, it points out that the, the province is now saying, look, the offer that's on the table now will not get us to $10 a day daycare. By year five, it will get us to $21 a day. They say it, that will leave a hole of a billion or more per year and growing by the time we get to year five, year six, year seven. Yeah, I mean, the price never goes down on these things. It always goes up. And I mean, I've got a young child, too. I know exactly, you know, the the tens of thousands that parents have to pay out. It is painful. But the other issue with this is that it is not the great equalizer. It's not, um, you know, daycare funding that will help anybody unless you've got a Monday to Friday job nine to five. I mean, those who work shift work or weekends or whatever will not get this. And so it is really for, I would say, a select few. Um, and, and many could benefit from it. Um, but again, Brian, it, it is, there's no such thing as a one-size-fits-all when it comes to childcare because the way the labor market is, it's just there are m- a lot of people who really, really need this are the very ones that won't get it. You know, and, and everyone holds up the Quebec system as the one that we should all emulate. And that's where this comes from because Justin Trudeau is a Quebecer first and foremost before he's a Canadian. And those aren't my words. Those are Always. his. <laughs> yes. um, he, uh, he looks at the Quebec system as being great. But if you follow the Quebec system, you're more likely to be able to get a, a $10 a day daycare spot in Westmount, which is one of the most exclusive neighborhoods in all of Canada, than you are in Villamard, which is a, a low-income neighborhood in Montreal. Uh, there's long waiting lists all over the place because... When you lower the price to this level, it creates more demand. So there are, you know, this is portrayed as a very simple thing by Mm-mm. the federal government. 
it's not. It's complex. And so I've been speaking to people at the federal level and the provincial level, and they say, well, we don't know what the issue is with, with Ontario. When you, you hear that from Karina Gold, the new minister, um, who's incredibly partisan online towards the Ford government, mm. so I'm surprised that, that the Trudeau gang put her in to negotiate a deal. Uh, but the province has been negotiating this for months and has sent information in, and she just says, well, we don't know what the issue is. Yeah, you do. Now, you can mm-hmm. quibble, and, and, if, and if you have a point of dispute with the province, then bring that to us in the media, because they're both negotiating through the media. Bring us your point of dispute. Tell us where the province is wrong. Just don't you know, throw up your hands in exasperation. Well, we don't know why they won't talk to us. That, that's a ridiculous way to, to go about negotiating. Um, well, but that that to me, Bryce, speaks to the politi- the political side of this. And we know we, there are real headwinds coming our way. Um, there are a lot of things that this government does not want to talk about. So as long as you keep childcare in the headlines, it's a very emotional issue for parents, especially after the last couple of years of parents in this region having to homeschool and do all the rest. And, and they, it's a very, very uh, big topic. And so the, he- the headlines are going to get all the, the attention. But it's, it is about politics. There, there's a lot of politics going on here. And that's, look... We're talking about politicians. You don't blame the Scorpion for standing you. They're being political. But remember this. This is the deal that Justin Trudeau said he wanted. He promised this. And he promised parents that he would give them an average price. Always remember that. On average, parents will pay $10 per day. Um, And he promised the provinces that he would pay 50% of the cost. And Ontario keeps saying, you're not paying 50% of the cost yet with what you've put forward. You need to pay more because it's more expensive here. Seven out of the 10 most expensive jurisdictions in the country to provide childcare are in Ontario. Uh, yeah. Two others are in the Vancouver area and then Calgary. Uh, you can't compare us to other parts of the country when trying to dream up a proposal like this. And, you know, they keep saying, well, we'll be 50-50 partners. Just trust us mm-hmm. after year five. Well, how's that working out for healthcare, where the feds promised 50% and now pay 22% of the cost? Yeah. Nonetheless, the devil is always in the detail, and the detail is to be found in the latest Brian Lilly article in the Toronto Sun on this. Brian, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. That is Brian Lilly of the Toronto Sun. Glad he's been following this and doing all the number crunching, because it is very complex, and it's not as easy as just saying, hey, they won't sign. There's a, de- there's a reason. Great to have you here on this Monday. So we have been talking about the TDSB trying to cancel Marie-Hune. And, and uh, you know, there are just some people who you can't cancel. She is one of them. And now they've been tripping over themselves to clean up a mess of their own making. But these incidents of censorship, whether it's the books or speakers that kids are, you know, exposed to, I think should be a real wake-up call to parents who should be asking, you know, what are kids being taught in school? Are they getting balanced? Are they being taught to think critically? What are they actually learning? And I think it's a very good question because while the board was all worried on Friday um, about what the country's best lawyer may teach, they don't seem at all concerned about things like increased anti-Semitism, which is either being taught in school or allowed to run rampant. And on Friday, students at a Toronto school called Mark Barno Collegiate took part in a walkout where they were holding up signs openly calling for the destruction of Israel. Let me bring in Abby Abraham Banlolo to the conversation. He is the AGPI's founder and chairman. Good to have you. Well, thank you for having me, Alex. 
Um, your reaction, I mean, they were holding up signs saying from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. And I think to most people, they'll say, oh, that's nice. Okay, perfect. But there is a hidden message in, in you know, verbiage like that. Uh, yeah, that's correct, Alex. And certainly there is a hidden message. Uh, they're being very careful uh, not to overreach with respect to hate speech laws. Um, so they can't outwardly call for genocide, but in fact, that's what it is. Because for those of us who, who, who know and understand the map of the state of Israel, uh, the river, they're talking about the River Jordan and the sea, of mm-hmm. course, talking about the Mediterranean. And so who is between the river and the sea? It's Jewish people, mainly. 80% of Israel are Jews, 20% are uh, Arabs, Muslims. And so uh, when they're talking about from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, they're really um, calling for the genocide, if not the ethnic cleansing, uh, of the Jewish people on that land. Uh, And it's also the same with the the phrase free Palestine. I mean, Palestine can be free, Davi, um, if if Hamas is, is... you know, goes away, Palestine can be free. But if you're going to say free Palestine, what you're essentially saying is free Palestine from Israel because Israel is an occupier. And so get rid of the occupier. It's eradicate Jews and Israel. Right. And, uh, you know, I would say I actually find it funny because, uh, you know, the free Palestine slogan is missing a couple of more words which is really free Palestine from the Palestinian Authority and Hamas. Right. Because they are the ones that are holding uh, the Palestinian people hostage. They are the ones that are running terror states. They are the ones that are stealing money from foreign donors and putting it in Swiss bank accounts, most, most likely, and you know, not helping their own people by building schools and hospitals and roads and infrastructure and everything else. And we know how much money pours into Gaza And we know that that money is used to build terror tunnels to attack Israel and rockets to launch against uh, Israel. And and Hamas, of course, is a radical Islamic uh, organization that is um, oppressing and suppressing and subjugating um, its own people. And therefore, um, you know, when they say free Palestine, it really is free these poor people, which really they, they are from Hamas and the terror that Hamas is invoking. And as well, the Palestinian Authority that has not had a democratic election in in what, 15, 16 years at least. And, you know, they recently attempted to have their fourth uh, election. And then, of course, Mohammed uh, Abbas, President Abbas, um, he he canceled it because he realized that, of course, Hamas would, would have a stronger hand in that election. Not only did he cancel the election, but he also... Um, um, incarcerated several of the uh, kind of the pro-democratic leaders within the Palestinian uh, Authority within the West West Bank. Um, And so so there is that suppression of democracy as well. So it's completely ludicrous uh, when they say free, free Palestine, because it's not Israel that's the problem. Israel wants peace. It's them, and they are keeping their own people uh, suppressed. Right. And anti-Semitism is not always, you know, this very bold and obvious hate. It's kind of like this very cancerous creep of tentacles. And, you know, we know that it's on the rise around the world. We know it's on the rise in this country. We know that in 
you know, schools across Ontario that there are anti-Semitic attacks almost every day that go unreported. And so there was a, a big backlash from groups like yours, the Abraham Global Peace Initiative, um, and, and other Jewish groups who are, saying, are looking at these protests of these young students and, and speaking out against it. Um, when I see stuff like this, I think, okay, maybe if these kids had more critical thinking, maybe if they were questioning it, but where are they getting this from? Where is the balance? Because kids can protest. We want them to be engaged in issues like this. But I'm concerned with the lack of balance or understanding the message they are being marched out to send. Because I don't think they understand it. No, and I think you're 100% correct. And I've actually seen that um, on the front lines. I've been to protests um, places like York University is an example. And you turn to some of these students and you say, you know, do you really know what you're protesting about? Do you, do you, do you know what Hamas is? You know, Hamas suppresses women's rights. Is this what you're really supporting? Um, and they're like, oh, I, I didn't really realize that. And so, you know, what we're dealing here with is, is really just an absolute ignorance where people, you know, students particularly, they think they're fighting uh, for social justice when in fact they're fighting and supporting terrorism. And they're calling and they're, they're, they're supporting calls for the destruction of a Jewish state, another Holocaust, in fact. And, and that is really uh, disconcerting, that level of ignorance. And then, of course, more so, um, you know, we feel in the Jewish community that the school boards have kind of um, allowed this to happen, particularly following the last uh, war in Gaza this, this May, where we've seen um, you know, a lot of rhetoric calling Israel um, things like colonizers and settlers and apartheid, which are all fallacies and wrong when you, when you really look into it deeply and understand the country. Um, and so, and so that has allowed this percolation of anti-Semitism, things like the walkouts that we're, we're now seeing, it's enabled it to happen uh, rather than being shut down or, as you said, you know, allowing students to think critically and going in and educating the students that no, Israel is a democratic state. Um, the Muslim and Arab population have free and equal rights, just like anyone else. And, you know, and all, all you have to do is walk the streets in, in Israel, as I just did uh, a couple of weeks ago, and see, you know, populations of every, you know, faith and minority uh, walking about doing their business. Right. I mean, it's it's a backwards kind of world when someone like Marie Heenan or, or Nadia Murad, um, who survived ISIS, uh, you know, get canceled. But then you've got a guy like Desmond Cole, who's been not only invited into the board, but paid by the taxpayers thousands of dollars to speak about, you know, racist issues. And then he, you know, goes on on the same kind of tirade of free Palestine and 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 was said to have made some very anti-Semitic comments uh, during recent meetings. I mean, this is where we're at, where we've got, I think, a deep ideology getting into our kids' education and a very, and a lack of understanding about what these kids are actually being taught. It, yeah, and it's it's not just the kids. I mean, we're seeing it in some of the teachers and, uh, you know, people forward to me tweets from from teachers who support uh, this kind of thing. Um, and unfortunately, uh, you know, you have even within, uh, you know, the, the school boards itself, um, you know, advocates for this that are the enablers. 
Um, and, and that's feeling, I mean, I think the saddest part of the whole thing, to be honest, in, in you know, we all believe in freedom of speech and freedom to protest and all of those mm-hmm. things. But, 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 but the saddest part is the really the marginalization um, of both uh, Jewish teachers and Jewish students who are now yeah. seeing this. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine a walkout mm-hmm. you know, a Jewish kid and a walkout, um, people calling for the death and destruction of the Jewish state? As a Jewish kid, how do you feel? Um, and you probably don't feel so good. And so when it comes to equity and diversity and accommodation and all of these, you know, catchwords, they never seem to apply when it comes to Jewish people and to, you know, Jewish faculty and Jewish students. They only apply to the other side. Yeah, sadly, I hear an awful lot about this and it doesn't make the news, but it's uh, it's quite frequent in the schools, um, some of these anti-Semitic, uh, you know, Yes, incidents that are happening to the kids. And nonetheless, Avi, we'll keep our eye on this and, and see if change doesn't happen. <laughs> but nonetheless, I, I, I hope there may be a turning point at some time. Appreciate your time on this. Well, thank you very much for covering this, Alex. That is Avi Bonlolo, founder and chairman of Abraham Global Peace Initiative. We will continue to investigate every single level of failures from the very top at Live Nation to the security team, we're not gonna leave one stone unturned. As you know, there are there's a, a criminal investigation happening, which we intend to comply with. But as this lawsuit goes on, we will be taking the depositions of the highest ranking executive officers that had the power to shut this concert down and didn't. And they're gonna have to testify under oath as to what their reasoning was, Mm -hmm. what their unimaginable reasoning was for not shutting it down when they knew people were already dying. It had been declared a mass casualty event. So that is one of the lawyers of the many lawsuits now piling up in the Astroworld tragedy. And over the weekend, we learned that the youngest of those crushed at this concert has now died. That is Ezra Blount. He was uh, on his dad's shoulders when the crowd surged and he fell off and was trapped, uh, trampled. He's the 10th person killed in this crowd of 50,000. So now as of Friday, there are about 100 lawsuits filed against Travis Scott, Live Nation, Festival Organizers, on and on it goes. And without question, I think they're going to just keep coming in from those who either have loved ones who are killed on that night or those who were injured. And one of the first lawsuits filed was by a man named Manuel Souza, who was trampled in the crowd and who alleges in his suit this was all very predictable very preventable. Tommy Kirker is a managing partner with the Kirker Law Firm. He's on the legal team representing Mr. Souza in that lawsuit. Good to have you. Thanks for having me, Alex. What were the injuries that your client, uh, if you're allowed to talk to them, what did he suffer through through the, the night of the events? Sure. I mean, plain, plain and simple, he was crushed. He, 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 he was trampled by the crowd where he couldn't get up. Uh, we've heard the, the term drowning, where, you know, he was just at, at the whim of the crowd. and He got caught under, and he was just trampled, and he suffered very, very serious injuries as a result. The allegation is that, uh, in his particular suit, is that, uh, you know, this event put uh, people at extreme risk of heart, uh, harm when concerts goers successfully breached these security gates, you know, earlier in the day and then stampeded onto the premises. So he has alleged that this was all very predictable and preventable. And then you look at these predictors and you kind of go through the history of a Travis Scott uh, show or, or what he's known to to do and the allegations from fans are, you know, he would tell them to sneak into shows or urge fans to rush the stage. And there have been 
been numerous incidents since 2015 of these kinds of events that almost show a, a you know a preview of what was to come. That's exactly right. This show was a ticking time bomb. I represent to you that it wasn't an issue of if this was going to happen, but when. Whether this was Astro World Fest 2021 or Astro World Fest 2022 or 2023 or what have you. If you look at Travis Scott's past and how he cites mm-hmm. violence time and time again at the concerts and shows that he puts on, this was just only a matter of time. I mean, in 2017, a guy got paralyzed at one of his concerts. In 2017, again, he was arrested for inciting violence. I mean, the list goes on and on. And, and when you tweet things like in March, when the, as, when the tickets for Astroworld went on sale and they were sold out in minutes, and he's immediately tweeting, don't worry if you didn't get a ticket, we're still going to w- let the wild ones in. You know, he's basically just inviting people to come and create mosh pits and create chaos. Mm-hmm. And I've seen, since I've filed this lawsuit, interviews with him, with Mr. Scott, saying it's not a market unless people are getting injured or I want to see blood or things to that effect. I mean, he, he was the spiritual leader of Astroworld. This was his brainchild. And for your brainchild, you need to take accountability for the culture you create. And he clearly created a culture in which everybody thought it was okay to create havoc. And, and it's not new. I mean, Tommy, I'm sure you've been to your share of shows. Lord knows I have in my time. Mosh pits are a thing. And, and we've certainly seen these kinds of tragedies. Pearl Jam had a devastating you know, uh, you know, event itself. I think nine people were killed in one of these uh, events where people crushed uh, forward and people were killed. It is not the first time it's happened. What makes this sure. particular case different um, than, than, let's say, others that have gone on before before sure well, well what makes it different is because this was so foreseeable based on mm-hmm. scott's own acknowledgement and actions it's one thing to, to promote this culture but another thing that if you're an event organizer or somebody responsible for putting on this festival when you make a deal with mr scott and you say okay mr scott we're going to put on your event well if you know that event is going to be extra rowdy then you need to make sure you have tip-top you have a tip-top venue that is laid out properly where medical personnel or security can get to places that are getting out of control if need be, and you need to make sure you have the event under control. I mean, I've been to dozens and dozens and dozens of shows in my life, and I've never right. felt I've never felt where I was never not in control or was, I was never in fear for my life. And, you know, I, I've been to large festivals as well. You know, I, I've been to festivals where there's 50,000, 100,000 people. There's a right way to do crowd control. And the venue organizers, especially knowing Mr. Scott's history, failed just tremendously uh, in, in putting on this show the right way. Yeah, I mean, some of the stories are, are absolutely uh, just heartbreaking when you when you hear about them. And, um, you know, people will say, well, like, why are you letting little kids go to shows like this? You know, when they hear about little Ezra dying or, you know, you hear some of these people. I mean, as you say, if you do these shows right, they shouldn't have a problem, which I think is so surprising to many people. You know, Live Nation is not a small organization. They are very reputable and they've carried other tours and other festivals um, with great success and no problems before um when you 
have something like this with this many lawsuits coming in, be it for injuries and or all death, how difficult has it been to preserve this crime scene uh, and, and get the evidence that you need to build your case? But, you know, Travis Scott himself has openly said he's going to pay for things like funeral services or, or kind of, um, you know, any therapy people need also that he'll work for police. So what are some of the challenges you guys are up to uh, up against? Sure. And, and, and forgive me, I'm going to be careful with my words and maybe a little light with my words, because my, my firm, we were the very first ones to file a lawsuit. And part of the reason why we did that was to immediately get on the record that we need to preserve all the evidence. Right. So we right. filed our first lawsuit, Manuel's law, law, lawsuit, within 24 hours. We asked the court for a temporary restraining order. The parties agreed upon it. We spent all this past week uh, out at the venue inspecting it. So mm-hmm. we, we spent three, four days on the property, or two, three days on the property. I myself went personally out there. Um, we had experts out there doing digital reconstructions of the venue to make sure you know all the evidence that we could possibly preserve was preserved. So that that, that part is done. I, I can't I can't really speak as to the yep. findings of what we found because that would be confidential work product. But that that that. That's the reason why we got a lawsuit filed so quickly. Now, with respect to um, Mr. Scott's actions of, of willing to pay for the funeral or refunds or all that kind of stuff, that that's a that's a that's a tricky conversation. Uh, I, I don't want to, yeah. um, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, insinuate or imply that it's a PR stunt. Uh, but I, 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 what I can just tell you is, based on my previous experience dealing with corporate representatives and defendants in the past, any time they're offered to, to do something after the fact, it is generally in their best interest. So, yeah. um, you know, so it, uh, again, I, I don't want to make this conversation about, you know, what he's willing to do after, because I, I have no control over him. Um, I can just say that, you know, action was taken, the, 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 the venue was preserved to the best of our ability. We, we were on site that just a couple of days after it, and we inspected it for, for days. And, and we uncovered a, a, a whole lot of stuff that um, I, will be useful to this investigation. Yeah, and Lord knows there's enough uh, video uh, and all these things. It's a, it's an enormous um, investigation. It's going to take probably months, um, you know, before it's uh, a completion. But Drake was also named and has been named in many of these suits, even though he wasn't the headlining event. And even though he may not have been encouraging crowds to surge forward, does that just become an automatic uh, with another artist performing on a ticket like this? No, so I'm not going to say automatic. And and for, from our lawsuit, which we filed, uh, you know, initially, we we my law firm did not name Drake. Um, however, it, it could be foreseeable as evidence comes out. And like you already pointed out, there's going to be hundreds of hours of video footage that comes from this, and even some professional quality video footage. Uh, Apple was there streaming yeah. uh, the, the concert, and and they they have they've had equipment there and. Um, you know, all, all, all of that stuff. So as evidence comes out, if it gets revealed that Drake was there inciting the crowd, he could potentially be involved in the lawsuit. But again, I, I don't want to speculate. I can just tell you right now, my law firm's lawsuit does not include Drake. Uh, and, and certainly there's no notion that somebody automatically gets involved in the lawsuit just because they were performing. They, they, they have to have some sort of... Uh, complacency or, or some sort of uh, uh, place in, in the actions that, that caused the actual and proximate cause of the people's injuries. 
Just before I let you go, Tommy, I mean, there is a certain expectation of some kind of liability when you put these big events, uh, you know, together. Um, is is this the kind of case, is this the kind of tragedy that will actually change festivals of this size moving forward, do you think? Even though we've seen them in the past? Uh, I, I, I sure hope so. I sure hope so. And, and to be honest, that's why, you know, that's why I do what, what, what I do is not for, um, you know, is not for any sort of um, vindication or, or revenge, but, but to pursue justice and make sure these types of things never happen because they should never happen. And as for your client, has he, um, you know, uh, healed from his his injuries, uh, be it mental or physical? So the short answer is no. He is out of the hospital. He is he is at home, recovering, healing. He's uh, going to start physical therapy, I believe, uh, very very soon. Um, or if he might have already started. Nonetheless, we will uh, stay tuned to this. I don't think this is going to be wrapped up with a bow anytime soon, but nonetheless, it's uh, well underway and we'll continue to follow it. Tommy, I know you guys are very, very busy, so I very much appreciate your time. Thank you, Alex. Thanks for having me. That is Tommy uh, Kerger, who has uh, is part of the legal team representing the bir- big first Astro World lawsuit. That is one of many that will uh, be filed and is now before uh, the courts. So we'll follow that. Thank you for listening. Of course, you can join us Monday through Friday, starting six thirty sharp. I'm Alex Pearson on point. This is Global News Radio.